Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today, I'm joined by Fordham University English professor, Dr. Mary Bly. She's an author and a Shakespeare scholar with degrees from Harvard, Oxford, and Yale. Dr. Bly also writes under the pen name Eloisa James, the New York Times best-selling author of historical romance novels. Dr. Bly is here to discuss a course she teaches that introduces students to the world of publishing and to offer advice for writers looking to become published authors. So, Dr. Bly, good morning. Thank you for having me. Can I call you Mary? Sure. Okay. Or Eloisa. Uh, Eloisa. Which one do you prefer? I think here probably Eloisa because we're talking publishing, not Shakespeare. Okay, so I'll call you Eloisa. So, Eloisa, I want to start by asking you questions that I solicited from uh, aspiring writers, some English students, not yours. So what steps does a writer need to take to become a published author? Well, you have to become good, right? (laughs) You have to work hard. I think uh, Elizabeth Gilbert was in my class, and she said there are three things you need to be a writer. One is you need talent. You have no control over that. The second you need is discipline. And you do have control over that. You can work hard. And the third thing you need is luck, and you have no control over that. So that leaves number two, discipline. In order to become a published writer, you have to be able to work hard. Do you subscribe to making sure you write every day? Or I heard some people that say, oh, I write when the feeling hits me. What's your plan? I can't write every day because I have two jobs and the Professor Bly kind of comes first. But when I write, I write very intently. I think it's more a question of when you can write, you sit down and do it. A lot of people say to me, I don't have any time. I mean, any time. And I can understand that. I was writing, you know, my second book when I had babies. I had children. I had a preemie baby. I kept writing. One of the things I tell people is that if you have five minutes, everybody's got five minutes. If you sit down and say, I'm going to write for five minutes, it's a lot less intimidating than saying, I'm going to sit down and write a short story, right? So I'm going to write five minutes, then you quit. You go take care of the babies, you do the shopping, you go to your job, you, you know, whatever, work in the deli. And then over time, those five minutes will really, really add up. So, Eloisa, what are the pros and cons of working with a publisher versus self-publishing? Let me say that if you can publish with a publisher, my advice is to do that. Because, frankly, a lot of my readers read in paper. We hear all the time about ebooks now, but there's a tremendous amount of people in America who really like to have a book in their hands. And it's not just people who are like, oh, they must be old. My, my son, who's in college, actually used a Kindle for a while, and then he went back to paper. He just likes it better. And there's a very different feeling of how you read a book. So some people like to whip right through it, and others like to back up or actually skip away and say, I'm going to go three chapters forward. It's harder to do that electronically. What you get for ePubbing, though, is is a level of control that you might not get. And, of course, if you sell enough, you're getting 70% of the profits or 45% of the profits, and so you might end up quite rich. The problem is that there's millions of books published every day now because of the self-pubbing option. Yeah, nobody's reading those. We have a discoverability problem. How do you discover a new writer? Well, you know what? Online, you don't. So if you actually look at the statistics, people's reading, they're reading a lot, but they're reading in a much more narrow way because bookstore space is shrinking. They're like, oh, what am I going to read this month? Well, there's a Nora Roberts. I'll read Nora Roberts. So she published three books in the last two months. That's all I need to read. So they're not discovering maybe some of the other new authors. Is there a way you would suggest discovering new books? 
Well, if you're a reader looking for new books, there's a lot of different ways. For one thing, I, th I really support indie bookstores. They're kind of like WFUV. You know, these are people who love books, who've made their life around books. They're never going to get rich. But those are wonderful community centers. They're, they're people where you go there and you're going to meet other smart, articulate people talking about books. And they often have events at night, which are fabulous ways to make friends and just to talk about books in a way that we do in college. And afterwards, people often want to keep talking. I mean, those are fun discussions. They become even more fun if you start slogging through a day job, as most of us are. Then online, of course, there's all the sort of robo-bots that are controlling, if you like this, you like this. I'm a little bit more hesitant about those because I don't know what, you know, I bought so many books from those, and then I download them like, I don't like this. Right. This is not, this is not me. <laughs> so Now, I want to talk to both Eloise and Professor Bly. Uh, what are some mistakes you see first-time writers make when trying to get published? Okay, well, a lot of people say, I'm going to self-pub. The publishers are just screwing people. You know what? There's a lot of things left out of that, that decision, and one of them is editing. I could not self-pub unless my editor quit and was available on a freelance basis because people don't understand what it's like. So they think, oh, you know, Eloisa, you've written 24 books. You must just be calling them in. The fact is that writing is really hard. And writing well, genre fiction is just as hard as writing literary fiction well. You have to pace the novels. The story has to move. You know, it's you have to be looking for what the story is demanding. My editor on the current manuscript I'm working on saw page 100, cut 40 pages out of it. I rewrote, sent her back another 100. She cut 60 out of it. So now I'm down 100 pages, right? I rewrote, sent her 110 pages. Yesterday she cut out one chapter. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, but I'm now down, you know, 120 pages out of the 100 pages I now have left in that novel. And people don't understand that you look at your babies. I never would have cut those pages. It's too painful. But she says very nicely, but she's like, look, pacing's off. You're going to have to cut all this part. And then I grieve for two days, and then I cut it. And you have to know and have a good relationship with your editor, I would assume, mm -hmm. to trust that they're not stepping over your vision, but they're helping to improve it. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, you have to have that. But, I mean, if you are accepted by a publisher, generally speaking, you're going to be working with someone who's done this for other authors. So people say, this is my book of my heart. I trust my own voice. You know, my candid response to that is, I'm a professor. I grade your papers all the time. When you were in college, you didn't think you were the best writer in the world. And if I gave you a D, you came to me and said, can I rewrite? It's the same thing when you're a creative writer. You can't go thinking you're Hemingway because you're not. You need help and you need to rewrite. And it's painful. But Can I ask you how you got published? My first book didn't get published, but my second book I sent, which many people do, I sent out to agents, which you have to have an agent because an agent really is the gatekeeper to the publishers. So unless you're going to self-publish, you need an agent who will take it to a publisher and say, I like this. Can I back you up? You didn't publish your first book. Why not? Because it was bad. <laughs> it's really bad. I have it. In, I have it. It was called Passion Slave. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. So did you decide it was bad? Or didn't oh, no, no. Or I have it? like 160 rejections on that ah, thing. Ah, gotcha. But a couple of them said, you know, I can really see something here. So it was enough so that 10 years later, five years later or something, when I decide to try again, I thought, you know, I didn't do it right, um, but I can do it. So I tried again. First of all, how did you overcome that disappointment? Because I would think, like, I spent my time and effort and poured my heart onto these pages. And you, what, you said over 100 people are saying no? 
Yeah. So how did you recover from that? Well, you, say, know what? you know what? That's what cuts the sheep from the goats right there. If you don't recover from rejection, you're never going to survive this. And people always say to me, I want to get my book published. What they're not thinking is it's not getting a book published. It's having a career, right? If you're a dentist, you're not saying, I want to go put braces on one person. You're saying, I want to put braces on for my whole life. So you have to think in terms of a career. And when you're thinking in terms of career, you're thinking of more than one book. You know, you're looking ahead and you're going to get rejected over and over. So your first step was to actually write the book and then send out what what do you send out pieces of it, chapters of it? Yeah. These days you send out a letter that says, here I am. Here's the people I'm like. I'm like Eloisa James. I'm a combination of Eloisa James and Clive Cussler. Whoa. You know, because <laughs> you're identifying the audience for the editor. And then if you're a literary fiction, you might say, well, I went through Columbia's MFA program or I've had a short story accepted at Esquire with literary fiction. Often you can't get an agent until you've had that first story accepted. So you send that and then you send either the story along if you're literary or you send along the first chapter. So do you suggest maybe not jumping right into writing a book, uh, maybe starting small and getting something published somewhere small? Depends what your genre is. If you're writing literary fiction, absolutely, I'd suggest going small because the initial publishing for there all seems to be short stories to me from the outside. I mean, obviously, poets go into smaller journals first. If you're writing genre fiction, though, you have to prove that you can write a novel. The short form is certainly used. I've written some novellas, but the main bulk of it is in novels. People want to pick up a novel and disappear from the world for a while. Eloisa, what factors should a writer take into consideration when deciding what medium to use to express themselves? When, for example, should somebody consider writing a blog instead of a book? Well, a blog you're not going to get paid for. So it's really a matter of what kind of audience do you want. So people say to me, this is the book of my heart. I couldn't possibly change anything. And I say, that's all right. You know, you could be writing for your family, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And there's wonderful places you can self-pub and come up with a beautiful hardcover book at the end. And you have a book to share with your family. It may be the book of your family. It may be your grandmother's story. It may be a memoir of part of your mother's life. Whatever it is, you need to think of what the audience is. If you want to have an audience of hundreds of thousands, you've got to think in a very different way than if you want to have an audience that's your family. Eloisa, let's say you've put your heart and soul into this book. You've sent it out. It seems like a publisher is nibbling a little bit. What are the signs that someone may have the right or wrong publisher? Well, remember, you've got to go through an agent. So the agent is going to send it out to the publishers. And sometimes you can end up with the wrong editor. That's for sure. I did have to switch editors at one point. How did you know you had to switch? She wasn't editing my books. I had hit the New York Times, and I'd been on the New York Times. I think I've probably hit about 15, 16 times now. So that's a very comfortable place for a publisher to be. For a long time, I was kind of like I was very, very consistently, you know, hitting the first week in 14 or 15. It's a great place to be. I made it through the recession on that. And for an editor, you, you can be tempted to just say, well, Eloisa is a known component, whereas I need to keep growing and changing. And... If you're a writer, you're a writer, but you're also a business person. And I was looking at that relationship and seeing those books go in. I was thinking, I need somebody to help me. I don't want to stick at 14 and 15, which is a wonderful place to be. I'm not knocking it. I want to be better at this. You have to try to get better every, every book. Otherwise, you're calling it in. You should retire. So it was a big deal because, of course, to switch editors within a publishing house um, when you're a New York Times bestselling author is very hard for that editor. To they might switch. take it personal, you think? 
Well, it was all handled above my head. That's one of the reasons why you have an agent. An agent is the person who goes to the publisher and says, you know, Eloisa thinks if you put that cover on there, she's going to blah, 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 right. whatever. <laughs> she does the unpleasant stuff, and that means that when you call your agent, you're like, how's your baby? You know, your editor, you're like, how's it going? And you get to be the friendly person, and the agent is saying she's leaving unless you give her X amount of money. Gotcha, gotcha. So you get to maintain your creativity and yeah, let, let them handle Yeah, and keeps the... things in a positive space. Right. So are there better ways uh, than others to present a book to a publisher? Should you maybe try to create your own cover? Should Absolutely you... not. Absolutely not. Makes absolutely no difference. Remember, you're going through an agent. This is an industry. So you will be assessed on your writing. You can do all the cartoon covers you want, so I don't make any difference. They're really going to look at that letter. And one very good piece of advice I heard now is that you do the letter and you paste the first chapter right below the letter. It's not a link. It starts right there so that they can scan the letter very fast because everything's email now and start the first paragraph. And that first paragraph had better be dynamite. You have one page to convince the reader and then the agent beforehand and the publisher to even think about reading your book. So how do you go about getting an agent? You send out the synopsis letter, and you send out the one chapter, and you send it to a bunch of agents. You can find them all online who are interested in your particular genre, who are looking for your genre. Another really good way is to say, I'm very like Clive Cussler. I'm going to look in the front of Clive's books and see who he thanks, because the acknowledgments will almost always thank the agent. So if you are a mini Eloisa, for example... You're going to look at the front of my books. You'll see, I think, Kim Witherspoon at Inkwell Associates. And you write to Kim Witherspoon at Inkwell Associates. She's a partner. like Eloisa? <laughs> yeah, she's a partner. So you probably, you know, someone will open it, right? And you say, I'm like Eloisa. I'm a professor. I write historical romance. I think mine is super smart. I blah, blah, blah. I was just at a signing with a woman who works at the CDC the Centers for Disease Control. She's an expert on tick-borne diseases, but she's also a historical romance writer. So, you know, she doesn't have my agent, but it would have been a very easy synopsis to say, I'm at the CDC, I'm, you know, blah, 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 I write like Eloisa, and here's right now at the bottom of the page, boom, chapter starts. Is there one writing genre that traditionally maybe pays better than another, or that's not the right way to look at it? Romance is 46% of every dollar spent on books. So, yeah, it pays a lot. I mean, it's a lovely place to be. The problem with that is that you can't really say, I'm going to make a million bucks. It's like saying I'm going to become a poker player, right? You have to love the game of poker to be able to play it well, to get to the place where you can play in the big games, right? I really love romance. I like literary fiction a lot. I read a tremendous amount of science fiction. I read some mysteries. But I like it better if it has a little bit about relationships, and that's just the way I am. That's the way I've been since I was like five years old. So I think that you have to be writing in a genre you like. And if the genre you like is small and it's read by very few people, that's the genre you're going to be in. That doesn't matter. That's where you can succeed. The first thing I ask people who say they want to be a writer is, what are you reading? They're sitting there in front of me going, I'm going to make money, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to write a romance. And I say, what did you read? And they say, Turgenev and Tolstoy. I'm like, it's over. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Okay. 
This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon speaking with Fordham professor Dr. Mary Bly, a.k.a. romance writer Eloisa James. We're discussing her new class, Publishing Theory and Practice, which introduces students to the world of publishing. She's also offering advice for writers looking to become published authors. So with so many people self-publishing, do you think the publishing industry is at all in risk of being obsolete? No. Well, it's changed, right? It's changed a lot. Basically, what self-publishing offers to the publishers, and they have walked on this brand bag, and they are making more money this year, most of them, than they have in forever. Because if you think about e-pubbing, there's no downside to it. If you have to print something, they print the covers abroad, they print the pages here, they come back, it goes back to reprint, they have to do a rush order, or the book doesn't sell. Suddenly the bookstores are sending back 12,000 copies. They just rip off the cover, send them back, and you have to give the money back. You don't go into publishing for the love of money, for sure. However, that said, for them, selling a ton of ebooks, there's no overhead, there's no distribution, there's no warehouse, there's nobody can send those back. So it's perfect. They're making a lot more money. What's happening with self-pubbing, as far as I can see, it's that lots and lots of people are putting their work out there. It's basically crowdsourced because readers read it. They hear about this. Something starts getting five stars. Publishers are watching it. Some of the agencies have two people on staff only watching the self-pubbed. So they watch. They let all the people who are readers make the decisions about which one they should take. Then they reach right down there and they pluck that writer up. And they're like, oh, look at you. You're selling 50000 in ebooks. I can get you up to 300 in print, and let's go talk to the publishers. And they go to the publishers. So a lot of the people I've seen coming online, it's very hard now to move up as a new author. In some ways, it's easier to move laterally. The publishers are buying a lot of people who come along with what's called an author platform. They come with a huge number of readers with them. So Twilight, for example, was published all over the place. Fifty Shades of Grey, all over the place. You know, she was publishing that serially. I think Twilight's the same way. So these are proven entities by the time they get in the publisher's hands. And then in the case of Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, they gave everyone in the publishing house a huge amount of money at Christmas because that book sold so much. Right. But that was an easy bet. It had already sold a million. So it was easy for them to see. Yeah, they're like, that way we're going to make a lot of money on this. And they did. (laughs) We talked a little bit about how the Internet is changing books and e-books and et cetera. Why do you think there seems to be this resurgence of people wanting to touch books like people are going back to listening to records on record Mm -hmm. players? I think there's something tactile about it, right? It's It's a bigger experience. You're bringing your eyes in, yes, but you're also bringing your hands in, the smell of the paper. I find I use both. So I have a Nook, I have a Kindle, and I have a ton of paperbacks. And if I'm having a bad day and I want to go to bed and read, I do not want to be sitting there with my electric book, you know. But if I'm on a plane and I'm worried that plane is going to stop on the runway and I'm going to be stuck without enough books, which for me is a panic moment, I love my electronic book because I used to have to bring three books along. Because the level I am in publishing, I'm on tour a lot. So the next two months, I'm gone every weekend. I go out on tour. So I teach on Tuesdays, you know, see my family, go back out. And I can't take enough books along to do what happens on airlines where suddenly you're parked on a runway somewhere and they're like, it's going to be a while. But if you have an electronic book, it's a lot easier to convenience. Yes. But for me, there's nothing like how you read with paper. And part of it is just the tactile sensation. But part of it is also, this is getting a little boring. I'm going to switch forward a little bit. 
And then I start reading again, and I might pick <gasps> You're it up. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah, well, you have to read every page. <laughs> I do. I'm much more likely to do that in paper than I am electronically. Electronically, I'm like, this is boring. I kind of switch that little thing at the bottom. All right. of a sudden, I have no idea what's going on. And it says, you know, you have your 49%. I'm like, it's gone. That right. book is gone, right? So I have, like, this graveyard of books. And I didn't do that so much with paper and so I feel in a way like if I buy a book in paper, I'm committing to reading it now. So I'm buying books that I hear about that I know I'm going to like. I buy them in paper to make sure I get through them because I don't have any patience in ebooks, And I'm wasting money and I'm just kind of not experiencing it the way I'd like to. Do you buy doubles? Do you buy like something on the Kindle and yes. something in paperback? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> or the worst thing is you go on the Kindle like, oh, this book is out. And it says, you've already bought this. <laughs> You're like, oh, oops. Uh-oh. <laughs> So, Eloisa, should I switch to Mary now? Because we're going to talk about the class. Okay, now okay. we're going to Professor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Professor Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, so the new class you teach at Fordham University is called Publishing Theory and Practice. So how and why did you set this class up differently than a traditional lecture course? Well, I'm a Shakespearean, so I generally teach Shakespeare. But in the last few years in particular, I've looked at graduating English majors and thought, you know, we have a different problem we have to face here. Because when I graduated, I could take jobs anywhere. And that's happened for many years. My students have had several job offers. That's not true anymore. So at this point, I think we need to take, the students need to be able to visualize their way to a career. So I decided, you know, I have all these contacts. I'm going to teach this class, publishing theory and practice, and just have speakers come in every week and say, my first question for every one of them is, how did you get from college to where you are? And I have people that cross the gamut. I have editors. I have authors. I have audio directors, such as the guy who directed the Harry Potter tapes. He won two Grammys for them. I have people who are working for someone came in who's a writer for People magazine, also someone who's an editor at Library Journal. You know, so everything I could think of that's within the publishing range in a very capacious sense in which people can get jobs. And they came in and have been telling these stories, three of them a week, usually, and My students have been going right out and getting internships. I'm really proud of that. And they're going out, getting the internships because they can see what to do. Did you find that before that it was challenging? You, you, Of course, you get people who go, I want to be an author. You know, I want to write a book, but they really don't understand what else is available. Is that part of the challenge? Yeah, it's part of the problem. And I'm a very practical person, so I don't teach creative writing. And I know that in a creative writing class, for example, you're working very hard on your poetry. That doesn't mean that that teacher also has time to say, here's how you publish that. Now, I'm the daughter of a poet, so I'm the first to tell my class you will never make any money doing this. So I didn't do poetry in my class, my publishing minus poetry. But I did everything else because it's one thing to say I'm going to be a writer and take three novel courses. It's another to say I'm going to be a writer and what am I going to do with this book when I finish? How am I going to make a living? So I had three number one New York Times bestsellers come in so that my students could see, okay, you know, it's not impossible to have a living. But at the same time, I had a lot of people come in who said, you know, I wanted to be an editor. I wanted to be an editor. I went into marketing. I love it here. I suddenly ended up at Marvel Comics. It's the best. So, you know, different ways to try to keep your options open. Don't get stuck with, I have to be an editor. Okay. Now you said your dad didn't make much money as a poet. Your mom wrote short stories. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm how's from a literary family. How, how's the short story writing paying? Well, <laughs> no, you know, I grew up on a farm. Thank goodness my grandfather was a farmer. Otherwise, we'd probably be homeless because there's no money 
There's not a lot of money. My father is a poet. He did go on and write Iron John, which is a book that was on the New York Times list for over a year. So I have that duality in my life, like studying Shakespeare and being a New York Times list. He was a very serious poet. He won the American Book Award. His name is Robert Bly. But he also wrote Iron John. So it kind of allowed me. I could visualize being on the Times list. Right. And is that half the challenge, too, knowing that you can aspire to what you want as opposed to being fearful of laying it all out there on paper for people to judge. Mm-hmm. So did seeing, you know, your 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 poet dad and your short story writing mom, did that help inspire you to make you think like, yes, I can? Or does that come from a different place? My father, for years, we were growing up on a farm in Minnesota. But if he wanted to do some things, we lived a year in Norway, we lived a year in France, we lived a year in California, which from Minnesota was like a different country. He would write to HarperCollins, and they would send him an advance. At that point, the advance was $10,000. My sister and I have discussed this because the model we grew up with is if you need some money, you write something. In fact, you write to HarperCollins, and they send you money. And the funny thing is HarperCollins has been my publisher now for 21 books. And, you know, we went to Paris for a year. And I wrote a book, Paris and Love, the memoir. But how we got to Paris, you know, <laughs> I wrote the <laughs> They sent me in advance. And they shipped like, that money tree, and then yeah. you're off to Paris. <laughs> right. So I learned that. I'm the dutiful eldest daughter, learned it right at my dad's knee, and there I am. <laughs> now, also, students in your class can work on projects that allow them to investigate the publishing industry, and they can also focus on the genre that they're personally interested in. Mm-hmm. Has that brought any surprises to you as a teacher? Yes, it has, because I laid it out so you could be writing creatively, but just not poetry. You could be writing about an industry or about a group of books, and almost everyone is writing creatively. So that's been kind of hard. I have genres that have been turned into me, everything from a cookbook to memoir to a lot of YA science fiction, one romance, and a lot of literary fiction. And I, of course, I'm not qualified to judge people's writing in this way. So what I've said to them is, this this is the first time you're hitting the profession right here, right? I am the agent reading your thing. So they just turned in three-page final drafts, and I basically went through and said, no, 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 yes. And then I met them each one. I'm meeting each one personally, and I say, look, here's why this failed. Now, your grade is how well can you recoup from this? I'm saying, I don't care about these characters. I think they're boring, and I don't understand the plot. So you got to rescind in another 10 pages, and the, your grade will depend on how far that distance is because I'm being their harshest critic, but it's the one they have to learn to be. Right, because I, I would assume that they would have to, whoever it is, entice the reader. And yeah. you as the editor, you have to entice, yeah. regardless of what genre you write in, you have to be interested in the simple story. They're never going to get accepted by an agent because the first page is boring. <laughs> and, they, they, you know, it's interesting working with new writers, which I've never done. They're like, well, I felt I had to explain all this. And I'm like, but I don't care that he had a shower and then he had breakfast. And, you know, I said, I come see, think about Facebook posts. Who's do you want to read? The person who gets up in the morning is like, had some hot chocolate. Boy, that was fun. Or the person is like, wow, I just got divorced. And it's like, well, I'm going for the divorce myself. I want some juice in there. Yeah. Dr. Bly, how long does it take you to finish maybe a 300-page book? It's about a year for a book. You know, you have to think ahead of I do a lot of thinking ahead of time. Um, a lot of planning. And then, as you can tell from what I said before, I, I revise a lot. I feel like I work so hard. I give it to my editor. I think it's perfect. And then she's like, slash and burn. And I start over. I wish it wasn't so long 
But I have to say, I write genre fiction. That's actually quite fast. I had Elizabeth Gilbert in my class. And she said, she, she, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And she's just written a novel that's been well-received everywhere. It's a rave. And so the students had all read it, 600 pages, and they were very excited. And it was wonderful having her there. You know, she's, she's had a movie made out of her books. And she just sat there very casual in front of them, telling them the story of how she graduated from NYU. And, and she went and worked in a deli, and she was trying to write, and she was writing terribly. And she told them why she was writing so badly and then how she writes so well. But for her, for example, it was three years of research for, and then one year of writing. So it's a four years to get to literary fiction is much longer than the time it takes to write a genre fiction novel. What is something you wish a seasoned writer would have told you when you were just starting out? The problem is I don't know how much I would have accepted. You know, things like if you think for six months before you start writing, your writing process will be a lot faster. But I kind of had to work to that myself, you know, by making mistakes. One piece of advice that I heard very early on that has been tremendously influential for me came from an author named Linda Lyle Miller, who's been number one in the Times. And she said, I'm a romance writer, and I'm a businesswoman, and the businesswoman comes first. And that has been very, very important to me, because particularly for those of you out there who are women writers, our instinct is to make our editors like us. Our instinct is to be liked. We want to be liked by our readers. We may not be as adventuresome. We may not say to the publishers, you know, see you later. I'm going to try this other publisher over here because we think, oh, she helped me so much. She loved me. You know, I am indebted to her. Therefore, she, being an acute businesswoman, is going to offer you a lot less money. So, you have to think as a business person because you're looking at a career. You're not looking at one book. You want a career writing. If someone wants to get a taste of your writing who may not be introduced to you quite yet, where can they find you? Well, I'm at www.eloisajames.com. All my books are there, including my memoir, Paris and Love. I want to thank Dr. Mary Bly and also Eloisa James for coming in and talking to us this morning. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Dr. Mary Blythe, a.k.a. romance writer, Eloisa James. I'd also like to thank my producer, Dan Murphy, and my senior producer, Alan Kamlick. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. A danser et l'on n'a même pas pensé à s'embrasser. Oh, Champs-Élysées!